Hey folks, this is Tony Russo from the So What's Your Story podcast. We have a little something different this week. We have a live event that we're calling One True Thing, where people come and they read stories about their lives that are true and are almost by definition compelling. We had our first event in the end of January at the Brick Room, and the next one is February 27th, beginning at 7 p.m., also at the Brick Room. Not all of our storytellers are professional writers. Uh, Many of them just have good stories to tell, and there is a submission process. If you're interested in any of that, you can find out about it on destinationdelmarva.com slash one true thing. If you go to destinationdelmarva.com, it is the first post on the page. One last thing before we get started. In the first story, there is a description of domestic violence and a little bit of salty language. If that's the kind of thing that makes you uncomfortable, I understand. But the story is just too good to not put out. And we're sure it's a story that's going to touch you. All right, here's the show. Hi, this is Stephanie Fowler. And this is Tony Russo. And you're listening to another episode of So What's Your Story? a podcast in which we talk to authors and writers about their writing, the stories behind the story, the writing process, and any other sort of miscellaneous writing stuff that we want to talk about. Our first story today is by Andrew Heller. Andrew is the author of the Samuel Smythe Young Adult series of books. He's also a director and playwright. This story is from his early days as a young student of the theater arts in Mississippi. Good evening. Um, this is a, a, a thing that happened to me. I don't know how else to introduce it, but uh, it was it was a lot. So here we go. Uh, the girl who lived in the cabin behind me. There is something unsettling about headlights. When you glance into the rearview mirror and there they are, staring back at you. This particular time, they were accompanied by a flashing red and blue, a thing which offered a mixed bag of nerves, dread, and comfort. It was my final semester of grad school at the University of Mississippi. I had just finished rehearsal for a show I was directing and was headed towards my dead friend Janet's apartment. It was mine now, but I still called it hers. I took over her lease after she left to pursue her PhD. When she was alive, she was, she was known as Bunny, a nickname her ex-husbands and her friends from a previous life used. But I still called her Bunny, and I played the games as she called them. Squirrels were squeedles, muffins were something we hardly ever have, and she loved it when words were mispronounced or used incorrectly. Like when my uncle would ask for a small piece of pie, just a slither. God, I wish she had met Mike, my born and bred Willard's husband, whose lexicon includes partials of land and financial reimbursements. I believe she laughs every single time I refer to her as my dead friend Janet. And I know she is thrilled that my son plays the games. Bunny's was the first in a strip of four single-story, two-bedroom apartments. There was a little wooden cabin out back. It was in the middle of nowhere down a road called, and I kid you not, Coon Town Road. Oh, Oxford was full of such little treasures. On the day my father helped me move into town, we were greeted by a Confederate flag billboard declaring, Heritage, not hate! a response to the controversy over Ole Miss having changed their logo and flag from the Confederate one to a large blue M with stars. There's the odd dichotomy of the grove, a 10-acre circle of magnolias, elms, and oaks, and the heart of campus where Ole Miss alumni gather for the finest tailgating you could ever imagine. Dining tables, fine china, chandeliers. It was also host to the Oxford riots. 
and home of the Lyceum, where the bullet hole from the attempted murder of the first black student at Ole Miss, James Meredith, can still be found. So anyway, I got pulled over. I got pulled over a lot in Mississippi. I drove a little white Nissan pickup with Florida tags. I had long, curly blonde hair and was about as loud and let's call it effervescent as I am now. Oxford being a small town in Mississippi, well, I guess I kind of stood out. Once while on my way home from a dinner party, I was pulled over and I took a sobriety test in a gravel parking lot, balancing on one Birkenstocked foot as the officer shined his flashlight in my eyes and asked me all sorts of questions, my outstretched arms alternating, folded in as I touched my nose, while my drunk friend Janet hung out of the window asking the cop if she could help. The officers were never very kind, but I was smart enough to not be doing anything. Sometimes the headlights were not the cops, but sometimes some other patron of whatever establishment I was leaving. Sometimes they would pull up to me at the light and stare and rev the engine. Sometimes it was touch my bumper at the light. Sometimes it was touch my bumper as we drove. And sometimes it was follow me down all the roads I could imagine driving. Like I said, there is something unsettling about headlights. So I'm home now. I did not get a ticket. And I'm working on my thesis, Equus, a production study. I had battled the administration over being permitted to even do the show. There were lots of back and forth meetings with my chair and the chancellor, and it was even intimated that my graduation could be in jeopardy. And not for the religious objections that a production like Equus might pose to the conservative mind in Mississippi. Now, it was because they were naked people. Please God help me, he's going to kill me. And a jarring scratching at my kitchen door pulled me from my writing. And then perhaps the most desperate and defeated cry followed a keening wail of resignation, the low, hollow howl of hope extinguished. It was late, maybe even pre-dawn. I opened the door and crouching before me was a bloodied and beaten young woman. I drag her in and shut the door. A violent pounding erupts as a male voice calls out in anger and frustration and he throws himself against the door. The girl shrieks and clings to me as we fall backs against the door. A cacophony of animalistic growls and curses and apologies and desperate pleas to God. The full length of my arms enveloping the sheer panic of an animal caught in a trap while the full strength of my legs pushed back, holding fast against the juddering attack on my door. The pounding subsides and we can hear him, the boyfriend, drive off. I call the cops. She tells me a little about their fight and that he grabbed a pipe and started beating her. And somehow she got out and she saw my light. Seems like an eternity, but the police arrive and we are questioned and they go to her little cabin. They also look around my living room, these officers, one of whom has pulled me over before. They nod in my direction as he points at a picture of me in what I thought was a sweet and edgy photo, me engaged in a kiss with this guy I was dating at the time. Long distance, because it's so much safer when you are in no position to ever really commit. I can't remember his name either. I mean, if pressed, perhaps I could, but despite being around for some rather significant aspects of my life, he was never a key player. He was no Ray or Aaron. He was no Melissa or Lana. He never really was. I mean, he did introduce me to the woman who would eventually become my ex-wife and the mother of my child, so I guess there's that. <laughs> the girl went to the hospital, and I did not go back to sleep. <clears throat> I'm sure I had to teach that day. I taught communication and acting at the university as part of my assist assistantship. She moved a few days later and I believe withdrew from the university. I was called to testify in court along with my friend, the police officer. 
The courthouse is a historic building in the middle of the town square. There are statues and plaques dedicated to the memories of those who died in service to the Confederacy. And we waited outside as witnesses. We were not allowed to watch the trial. And I remember the officer and several attractive young men dressed in their Ole Miss fraternity finest, the blue blazer and khakis and a nice light blue or pink Oxford and a tie, huddled in a corner talking, smirking, that familiar nod in my direction. It's funny how as a gay man, I'm often able to be like, oh, he's hot, yet then recognize that he would just as soon tie a rope around my neck and drag me down the street behind his daddy's BMW. One by one, we were called in. I was both relieved and nervous when it was my turn to testify. I was sworn in and I could not help but look at the boy on trial, maybe 20, at the age of my son right now. I cannot for the life of me imagine my child beating his girlfriend with a pipe. And I imagine his parents couldn't either. He was wearing his fraternity uniform and he just stared back at me, unafraid. I looked to the girl who used to live in the cabin behind me and she was frightened. She looked as though she would like to be anywhere, anywhere but a few feet from the man who essentially tried to kill her. My testimony was given and there was something about my not stating the county and state of my address and several your kinds were mentioned by the defense attorney of the fine young man as he was oft referred to during the trial. My testimony was rendered inadmissible. I didn't understand what happened and I still don't. I just know the boy got off and the girl cried a familiar cry. I never heard from the girl again. I don't remember her parents, her mother or her father. I'm sure I spoke with them. I don't even remember her name, but I remember her cries and I remember his stare. Not long after, there was an evening of pounding on my windows and doors and cries of, are you home, faggot, rang through the night. I kept my lights off and I sat alone on the floor in my windowless bathroom, my back pressed firmly against the door. I did not call the police. Morning came, all was quiet. I looked out my window into the damp gray Mississippi morning light and stared at the quiet little cabin out back. Wasn't long after that I sat down to take my comprehensive exam. It's a long exam where any and everything from the three years of study are fair game. And I sat alone in a little room on the top floor of Bryant Hall for about six hours. I did have a window with a lovely view of the grove. I could see the Lyceum, its beautiful columns and lovely facade. And I thought about the girl who lived in the cabin behind me. I passed my comps, I defended my thesis, and I graduated with an MFA in directing in the spring of 1997. And the Confederate flag was banned from football games the following October. I chose not to walk at my graduation. I convinced my parents it wasn't that important to me. My son Sam graduated high school in 2017, and he, Mike, and I took a driving vacation from Memphis to New Orleans and back again. Sam was a huge fan of Faulkner, so Oxford and Ole Miss were on the itinerary. We met some old friends and colleagues of mine for dinner at a little restaurant on the square. We laughed and chatted and reminisced. My friends were quick to share a story or two with Mike and Sam about my time at Ole Miss. And of course, we all love Bunny. She was gone now. And there was a baffling but flattering comment made about my making a difference for the LGBTQ and the Ole Miss and Oxford communities. While I'd love to believe that is true, I just remember trying to be me, trying to figure out who that was. and trying to do it without getting beat up or killed. And of course, there were the shows, my directing. Theater was a brilliant escape. We wandered the streets of Oxford, Faulkner's home, the Ole Miss campus, the Lyceum and its famed bullet hole. And there is now a James Meredith Memorial. And upon wandering into Off Square Books, where I once directed a stylized and bluesy version of Harold Pinter's The Lover, 
They had shirts for Pride Week. Oxford, Mississippi had a Pride Week. I don't know when I'll be back to Oxford, if ever, although I'd like to. And not to be too philosophical, but you can't ever really go back, can you? The Oxford I shared with Mike and Sam, that was not my Oxford. That was not my memory. And neither were a lot of what my friends had to share. My memories are different, scattered, yet from a time that may have been one of the most formative of who I would become. And while I am beyond thrilled that the progressive little town of Oxford is trying to shine some light in what is still a rather hostile environment for folks like me, there was a bizarre and selfish loss within me of a time that I worked so hard to forget, of moments and fears and hardships that I worked so hard to bury. And it is as though the town had also put those things away into a little compartment deep in its own personal memories of its own history and that they no longer matter. Only they do. It's odd 20-something years later to share this story here in a town that is getting ready to host its first Pride and to share that story where once again I had to learn who I was and come out all over again, primarily to myself, and to learn to be a father and a husband. My hair is no longer long and flowing, though I'd like to think my dead friend Janet would still call it stylish and attractive. And I'm just as loud and effervescent as I ever was. And I've never had the same fears or worries here as I did when I was in Oxford. I'm smarter. Well, that's debatable, but I'm more seasoned, more battle-scarred, and mostly I'm just more aware. And Salisbury is different. It's a different town in a different place. I wonder about that girl, though. The girl who lived in the cabin behind me. Did it break her? That time where justice failed. That day when the man who led her to safety was a your kind, and the man who beat her was a fine young man. I wonder if she had the resolve to overcome what happened to her that day down Coontown Road in Lafayette County, just outside of Oxford, Mississippi. I wonder if she went back. I wonder if she was told she made a difference. I wonder if she knows what an impact she had, and I wonder if she knows what a hero she is to me. Thank you. You're listening to So What's Your Story on WSDL 90.7 FM. This week, we are recounting some of the stories from our recent storytelling event, One True Thing, which took place at the Brick Room in late January. Our next storyteller is Barbara Lockhart. Barbara was actually a little apprehensive about reading her story aloud, but it, as you'll see, turned out to be a really engaging humorous and touching tale that uh, we were all we were all happy to hear and I'm sure you will be as well. Thank you everybody for coming. It's interesting that with Andrew's story it was about finding himself. He mentioned several times. That's pretty much what my story is about too. It's called Tomboy and it takes place somewhere in the 50s. I won't give you the exact date because that's telling you too much. On my block in Queens, New York, where I lived the first 19 years of my life, the kids were always outside, roller skating, playing stickball, or whatever we could dream up. One time, the steamroller came through and repaved our street. They left the steamroller right in front of our house, and when the workmen went home, I remember climbing to its high seat and viewing the world from an exciting new height. I loved it. I loved it especially because my grandmother told me when she caught me whistling that that was something that girls did.
did not do. There isn't a single picture of me being a tomboy, as if everyone denied it. Although my mother did tell me if I fell on that knee one more time, my leg would rot off. Thumbing through old albums, I see myself staring out at the camera in the exact same spot every year in front of the cedar trees in our yard. I am properly bedecked in successive Easter outfits, white gloves, hat, pocketbook, hoping, and I remember this clearly, that I looked all right, or at least good enough to win somebody over, my mother, my father, my grandmother, anybody. The year I was 13 and grew particularly unacceptable because on top of everything else, my skin was broken out and I had begun asking too many questions about religion. But then my father decided to repave the driveway. He never did anything without a lot of planning and measuring. So when he began doing just that, I knew that this was going to be a really big project much bigger than painting the kitchen, which put the house in an uproar for weeks and sent us eating suppers in the cellar. I heard him telling my mother that leading in from the street, there were to be two lanes with a narrow grass strip between them and beyond the cyclone gate, the solid cement section in front of the garage would be graded toward the center where a drain would catch the water from my father's Saturday car washes. He planned to break up the old cracked driveway and dig down so that chunks of old concrete would serve as a foundation for the new. The extra soil he planned to carry into the garden. Can I help? I asked, not really believing I would be included in the plans with a capital P. Because what my father wanted and deeply regretted was not having a son. And all he had were two girls, an adorable three-year-old curly-headed blonde who made him laugh, and me, who never even seemed to make him smile. You, he said, his dark brown eyes peering over his glasses as if he was seeing me for the very first time. In his hand was the paper on which he'd carefully laid out measurements and diagrams. What can you do? How about dig? shovel cement. I didn't know what else to say and shrugged my shoulders thinking, whatever it takes, I can do. Though to say that out loud would only lay myself wide open for ridicule or worse, a flat out no. But what I heard was a silence, a delicious silence through which possibilities threaded themselves. We began on Saturday for he had a week's vacation during which he planned to do the driveway. The August heat descended on us like a blanket. I hung around and watched him sling the sledgehammer high over his head and pound the old driveway into massive chunks like upturned boulders and razor-sharp chips as swift as arrowheads. Close your eyes when I strike, he grunted. He was sweating profusely. Get me some water, would you, kid, he said. It was music to my ears. I was in, a partner, and on the strength of that, I asked, what do you think God is, Dad, when I brought him the water? <laughs> 
He looked past me for a second and then said, can you lift that? And pointed to the sledgehammer. If you can't lift that 10-pounder, there's a 5-pound one in the garage. And then, I don't know what God is, but if people thought there wasn't one, there'd be bad things happening all the time because nobody would be afraid not to be good. And he turned away as if he'd said too much. The hammer was a little heavy, but if I swung it around to my side as I lifted my arms over my head, it seemed to take on a momentum of its own that I could follow. At first try, it flew high in the air and shot down in front of me, and all I had to do was keep my feet firmly on the ground and arch my back. Again and again and again, I swung the hammer. It was the swing and the rhythm of it I fell in love with. And the thud, the quiet thud and shudder of smashed stone at my feet. I was delirious with it. The gorgeous power of it. The permission of power within it. I worked for a long time without stopping. I was so strong. I thought I could do anything. A feeling I was unaccustomed to, and I had a banged up knee to prove it. My father was surprised. I could tell. He turned away and busied himself with measuring, but I caught his quick glances out of the corner of my eye. The driveway crumbled, wedges stuck up like caved bridges. A small piece was angled on the ground before me, the corner of it protruding like the rock of Gibraltar. With strength that could only be described as overkill, I swung and missed. The handle hit the edge of the concrete and broke in two. Its jagged ends splintered my heart as well. Horrified, I looked at him and waited. He glared at me, his face red, those dark eyes hidden by the sun glancing off his glasses. I dropped what was left of the oak handle on the ground and knew that the worst thing I could do just then was tear up. Put it in the garage, he said, and went on with what he was doing. I did as he asked, feeling miserable and not sure what to do. But I hung around anyway, telling myself I was definitely staying, even if he told me to leave. Most of the concrete was broken up by this time, and he began to pile the pieces to one side so he could dig a trench to bury them in. Silently, I hugged the chunks with him, stopping sometimes to break up the larger pieces with a five-pound sledge. He didn't say anything, and I took his wordlessness as a sign of forgiveness. On Sunday, he began outlining where the new driveway would be with two-by-fours. What's that? I asked him when he laid a long metal rectangle with glass tubes embedded in it along the wood forms. A level, he said. The bubble should be in the exact center of the glass tube if the board is level. On those boards, and he pointed to the center of the driveway, the bubble will lay on the first mark so that the concrete will grade down to the center and the water will drain. It was as intimate a piece of information a daughter could hope for. A <laughs> A secret I was sure was only imparted to boys on how to do things, big outdoor things. 
not kitchen stuff. Soon, stake and string and boards surrounded the sunken concrete, and the new driveway was becoming visible. Bags of cement and piles of sand were delivered along with an electric-powered cement mixer, which my father immediately plugged in just to make sure it ran all right. It growled and scraped and spun around, magnificent in purpose. That's for you, he shouted above the racket. Two shovelfuls of sand and one of cement and a little bit of water with the hose, okay? That was it. And I was but 13 and not even a boy. I began shoveling while the neighbors clucked to my mother. That's not good for a girl. She'll wind up with a hernia. She'll ruin her insides and never have children. What is he thinking? My mother just said, watch that knee, will you? But there were no questions in my mind now, not a shred of doubt, as I shoveled and tossed sand and cement into the mixer and watched it spin, careful to put in just a squirt or two of water or more, depending, judging, is it too loose or too dry, my arms aching, the heat relentless, the call of cicadas lost in the wild turmoil of the monster before me, and my father bringing the wheelbarrow into which I poured cement that would harden and stay forever. I had a place in this world and was connected to it now, I thought, as I watched him carry off each load, his sleeveless undershirt black and gray with cement, his muscles hard, his face so stern, and somehow triumphant too. And I shared in that the triumph of a new driveway, even though he never said, we did it, kid. Or, how about that? She worked right along beside me. Or never even allowed our initials in one small corner. But he didn't have to. What he did say years later as we sat around the kitchen table and my own kids listened to his stories was, your mother broke a 10-pound sledgehammer once. <laughs> My God, you should have seen the look on her face when she did it. <laughs> and he laughed. He laughed. I wish I could tell you I entered adult life with confidence and that lessons I learned helping my father put in a new driveway held me in good stead over the years. Love, acceptance, forgiveness. Hmm. Not quite. It was not on his list to hand me self-esteem on a silver platter. No one ever worried about self-esteem in those days. What happened was almost by accident, as if it were an afterthought, and it went way beyond what anyone thought of me. It had to do with the wild exuberance that came riding in on that swing of the hammer and the flinging of sand and cement into the mixer. It had to do with the harmony of body in motion, like a dance, which I came to love dearly in later life, and knowledge of how cement is made and things made level in that other life that belonged only to men. There I was in a long moment of joy, and I took it pure and simple, the solace of real work and motion. It has stood all by itself like a lighthouse in a sea of grief and doubt and disappointment. 
but it was where I truly began, a place from which I could reach out. Even my knee finally healed. Once again, if you're interested in joining us, the next storytelling event is 7 p.m. Thursday, February 27th at The Brick Room. We feature four storytellers on the theme, Anything But Love. And of course, if you're interested in participating and submitting your own story, just visit DestinationDelmarva.com and click on One True Thing for information about how to submit your story and the review process. So What's Your Story was produced by Saltwater Media, an indie book publisher in Berlin, Maryland. Visit us at SoWhatsYourStoryPodcast.com, where you can find past episodes, guest bios, show notes, and all sorts of fun stuff. You can subscribe to the podcast on iTunes, Radio Public, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. And remember, take a second and give us a great review. Tell your story.